Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Quarter. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 103. Tonight we are Sans Argo. He's on a boat, I guess, right now. Definitely while you're listening to this, he's probably on a boat. Definitely, probably. I can't remember if he was going to be on land by the time this episode will get released. But he's he's on a boat as we're recording. So Anyway, so a couple of... Uh, it's kind of a light news week. I guess it's a lull leading up to Dub Dub. But there's a few little developments out there. And we got some good things to talk about tonight. Before we get started, Alex, how are you doing? Pretty good. Uh, it's been a busy couple of weeks, so I'm actually looking forward to uh, a little bit of a slowdown. Yeah, are you all recovered from your conference that you went to? Yeah, yeah, I think I finally caught up on sleep, uh, but I've got a lot of ideas that came out of the conference that I'm trying to get implemented uh, as time permits. Yeah, I I started that spring training known as yard work over the weekend, <laughs> a little bit sore from that still. Yeah, and we finally started, uh, spring finally came, uh, cold weather's gone for a little while. So yeah, yeah, we've trying to get some time outside as well. Yeah, it's it's awesome. So while you're out there doing yard work, we got something for you to listen to. So uh, first thing up in our queue this week, that uh, that one thing that we kind of don't like about Swift, the, the weird keyword file private. There there was some debate that it was going to go away, but that's not going to happen. Oh well, it's. Not the perfect language. Yeah, uh, I. It was kind of weird when they introduced it. Uh, I think I think they came like was th- Swift three. Yeah. Um, it'd probably be a little bit annoying if they took it away. I just you know right now, I really want source compatibility <laughs> more than <laughs> anything else. <laughs> I don't want to have another painful migration if we can avoid it. So some of the stylistic changes I, I'm kind of done with for now. Give us a little bit of breathing room. Yeah. Don't yeah. want to do major migrations every six months. <laughs> yeah. I've been doing a lot of go in my spare time this past week or two. And one thing is about go is that it's a very stable platform. Uh, you can take code that was written for Go 1.0 several years ago now and still compile it under the latest version, which is Go 1.8. There's something to be said for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, hopefully we'll be able to say similar things not too long from now about Swift. <laughs> but yeah. uh, it keeps getting pushed out. Yeah, well, and conversely, too. You could take code that was written in Java 1.0 and compile it today, but that's 20-year-old code. and There's a lot that's changed that you'd want to take advantage of in that, in that time frame. So having a bit of an unstable syntax for now, I can deal with, but 
it really needs to solidify quick. Yeah. Yeah. We've had quite a few rapid revisions uh, for a fairly young language, which isn't all that unusual. It just happens that this language jumped in market share really fast, where a lot of these other languages like Ruby was around for probably, you know, five plus years before it really got any major traction. So it could evolve a little bit in the dark, um, where Swift was uh, closed off to just a small group of people and then all of a sudden launched to a very large audience. Yeah. Well, and also most of the time, these language maintainers, they will rev, the, rev their languages and make breaking changes all the way up until the 1.0 release. And then they try to be more more stable, more forgiving. Yeah. Yeah. That hasn't happened. Uh, it yeah. needs to happen. I think for a long time, Java stagnated and maybe still is to some degree um, because of the fear of introducing new keywords or breaking changes. Yeah, it's definitely harmed them. You know, their, the generics implementation suffers because they wanted it to be backwards compatible. They didn't want to make yeah. JVM changes, which it would have required to make a good generic implementation. Yeah. It always seemed odd to me that C++ got closures before Java did. <laughs> yeah. I hear C++ is not so bad these days, but I think you always hear that too. Yeah. It, it has its purposes it, and it has continued to evolve. So, that it hasn't stagnated either. Yeah. So another um, evolution this week, we got a rev of Xcode and we got 8.3.1. And I guess they had some kind of weird bug where it was producing binaries that were up to three times the normal size. I don't know. I didn't have any kind of time to look into why it was doing that. I don't know if it was packaging too much, too many static libraries or something. Did you hear anything about why it was doing that? I didn't really dig into it and I've been kind of hesitant to even upgrade to 8.3 uh, just because of some of the things I'm working on. I, I didn't want to, uh, run into any weird bugs like that, for example. Uh, so I wanted to give it a little bit of time to, to fully bake and wait for some point releases. Well, the, the upgrade in the app store was actually very fast. It didn't have to download the entire several gigabytes of data. So it wasn't that bad, but yeah, this is also the first release that doesn't have uh, Swift two three in it anymore. So I could I could see why you would be hesitant to to jump on the bandwagon, especially for a small point release like that. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting that uh, anything built with Xcode eight point three uh, won't be accepted into the App Store shortly because of uh, this issue. <laughs> uh, I presumably you can still do like eight two x, uh, just not eight three flat. You can do eight three one or eight two, but not eight three. I assume. 
Yeah, that would make yeah. sense. And you can even eight. probably still submit with like seven Xcode seven. Yeah. A three also introduced, uh, or I should say, introduced to the opposite. It drops support for Swift two three. So uh, you definitely have to move up to Swift three with eight point three. Yeah, no going back. Yeah. I think there was also something they did. I don't remember the details to help with automation. Um, some, something with um, the simulator. can't remember what it was. But uh, it, it's nice to see that they're still making improvements to support testing. Yeah, although as long as it's unit testing... I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the, the interface testing. So if they're revving that, it's not a big deal to me. For some people, yeah, yeah I understand. But Yeah, I, I think uh, I can't find the, the specific note about it, but it uh, was most likely for um, UI testing. All right, so I might just cut that from the podcast. All right. <laughs> That's fine. So I got a question for you that this, um, this topic came up in my work Slack channel today and they were talking, the question was when you have to capture self in a closure and you know, it's, it needs to be a, at least a weak reference or unowned. If you use a weak reference, what do you call your, your self value? I actually, um, I've got a little snippet that I use. I, I forget where I found it. Um, but I will essentially read declare self. So you can do the backticks. So I do a guard let backtick self backtick equals self else. Oh. Uh, and then I just refer to it as self inside the, the, uh, closure. Oh, that's. That's a lot better than, than, uh, some of the alternatives that are being thrown out. Some of them were this or me, weak self. Yeah. yeah. I'll send, uh, we can put the snippet in the sh st show notes. I think, uh, it was on a slide at a conference and I, I made note of it and I've been using it. I kind of added it as a snippet in Xcode. Yeah. I'd like, I'd like to see that one. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, if, you know, for people that don't know, you can use the backticks uh, to use a keyword as a variable, essentially, and uh, works reasonably well. Okay, so yeah, it's basically just shadowing the the outer self. Then, yeah, before that, I was calling it weak self. Yeah, I would do that in the Objective C days. You do the, the whole weak self, strong self dance. Yeah. And I used a, a little syntax library called uh, lib, lib ext. I think it was just a extension library to some of the Objective-C syntax. And you could, you could do a at weak and at strong around the self. And it would kind of do the weak self, strong self dance for you. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's it was very handy. I want to say I've 
had seen something similar, but I never brought it into a project. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that's definitely, I tend to be a little bit over zealous perhaps with the, uh, the weak self, like I'll kind of do it by default. Uh, mm. if I need to reference self, I mean, ideally I try and avoid referencing self if I can just to, yeah, if I need a, like a member variable on my object, I'll actually just re I'll create a local variable of that with that value. So that, and then capture it that way inside yeah. the closure because then I can avoid using self a lot yeah. and it just makes life easier. Yeah. Um, that's, I think it's, it may be more efficient not to have a local variable in terms of like capturing. Um, thinking uh, about I'm it, not sure. So, um, I can only really speak more towards objective C closures because, but they, they put the memory in the heap somewhere, but I think it's in its own reserved area, not where the normal object allocation heap goes. Yeah. Well, I was, I'm, I'm thinking of it as like in objective C you would do like, was it underscore block or underscore underscore block, something like that to basically say that, you know, this isn't going to change well inside the closure. Actually, that was if you wanted to write back to that value. Oh, you're right. You're right. It would just, it would make a copy of it if it needed yeah. to capture it. Yeah. So I kind of see the local variables kind of like that because it, I mean, I suppose it could change later within the same function if it's a non-escaping closure. Yeah. yeah. But if it's like an async call, then it probably doesn't matter anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's a, this is definitely an area that I think a lot of people struggle with is like the weak and unknown and, you know, especially when you get into the closures, it's. It's a little tricky to, to think through it sometimes. The local variables kind of eliminate, eliminate some of that. Yeah, I like, I do, um, when I'm doing RX Swift, I'll tend to use unowned for when I capture self. I know that's dangerous, but my observables, they're being added to a dispose bag that would be in the view controller. So once the view controller gets deallocated, then all those observables get deallocated. And so there's really no chance of that them ever referencing a self that's nil. So, yeah. And, and I, I just, it bothers me to have to put like self question dot or something. And there are a bunch of guards if I need to access something in the self. So, yeah. I live dangerously with the unknown. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely uh, run into a few bugs with unknown. Not, not bugs in the language itself, but just uh, you know, thinking that that it could be unknown and it gets reclaimed, and and then you could get a little crash report. Yeah, or hopefully it crashes while you're attached to a debugger and you're still developing. Yeah. Yeah. The, the few times I've run into it, it's always been, you know, I find it out pretty quick. Yeah. I think the, when your app hits the wild, all kinds of weird stuff happens occasionally. 
I, re- I remember in the the last app I worked on, there were quite a few like, bump in the night type crashes where you, you just had no idea what what went wrong to actually cause this problem, and to recreate them were was really really difficult, if not impossible. Yeah, and sometimes you get these kind of misleading crash reports, like you know the app crashes somewhere else. Um, or the message has nothing to do with the actual root cause. So sometimes it can be pretty difficult. Yeah. Um, Fortunately, that's been a little rare lately. I I do occasionally get issues with Swift with, um, I can't remember what, what the most common thing is, but it usually has to do with Objective C code being called by Swift and, uh, Swift doesn't know how to handle the issue. <laughs> so it just gives me a generic error. Okay. Uh, like exec breakpoint is one I see a lot. I want to say it has a lot. I think I want to say it has to do with like, it's expecting, expecting a non-optional when it gets an optional. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I can't remember if that's the cause. Unfortunately, I haven't seen it in a while, but hmm. those are usually the ones that give me the most trouble that and like things that are in UI kit that are way far away from my code. Unfortunately, right. the, those, those are like these weird, like one out of, you know, 10,000 times that it, it'll do it. Or yeah. Maybe even more. Yeah. I've seen, yeah, you get weird behaviors sometimes in UI kit and you don't know if it's something that, that you did that caused an error down the line or it could actually be a problem with Apple's code. Yeah. Yeah. I think anytime you've got an app with extremely high volume, you're going to have these weird, um, crashes that you can't reproduce that you've never seen in testing that it's buried deep in somebody else's code into the framework code. And you've got to decide whether it's frequent enough to, to spend time on it. You know, if it only happens to one person out of a million, um, and it only happens once, it's you can probably just mark it. I think a lot of people, when they're dealing with apps that big, they wait for the escalation on Crashlytics or whatever the crash logging is to make it to like a level two or level three before they... Invest yeah. time in it. Yeah, that, this would be a great segue if we were talking about crash reporting tonight. Yeah. But yeah, unfortunately, yeah. we don't have a good segue. But our well, our, I mean, in a lot of ways, crash reporting is kind of like analytics, and that's analytics. You know, it's a it gives you some indication of how your app is performing. Yeah. in production. So, uh, and a lot of analytics packages also include crash logging. Personally, I would not, uh, opt to use my analytics package for, for crash logging. I'd no. usually use a, a dedicated solution for that. Yeah. Like def- crash analytics. Yeah. The, the whole fabric fabric, uh, suite is pretty good. Uh, Crashlytics in in there is probably top notch for analytics tracking for crashes. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, as long as Google doesn't screw it up somehow, uh, <laughs> it, uh, you know, probably will stay dominant for a long time. But, you know, we're continuing on our series of what I, what we consider essential features of a production quality app. And analytics is, it's usually an afterthought, but it's one of those things that, you know, you know, we definitely bake into every app we build, even if it's like the, the bare minimum screen logging. But yeah. understanding how people are using your app and uh, if they're using your app <laughs> is, is very valuable. Okay. Yeah. So, so what, are the, what are the kinds of things that you would want to measure with analytics? The, uh, you know, what we kind of consider the baseline is you know, logging screen views. Okay. Screen views, uh, maybe time on a screen. Uh, I know a lot of analytics packages will give you uh, like a session duration. And uh, some of the better ones, if you're logging pages, will give you pathing through an app. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's not applicable to every application, but understanding how people flow through your app. And you know, this is a pretty popular thing with like an e-commerce application where you want to see the path that a user took to purchasing an item or not purchasing if they get like three quarters of the way and then abandon the cart. Right, yeah. If you're, if you're finding that tons of users are abandoning the purchase right at the password dialogue, then maybe it's actually a good idea to put the password dialogue at the end of the purchase right before you would purchase or even add anonymous purchases and then allow them to click a button to create a profile. And that's the type of things that you can learn with analytics and you'd measure pathing and completion rates and that kind of thing. I know another thing that we look at pretty closely with analytics is the platforms that we're on. It, and that used to be a, a really big deal for us in terms of, and, and still to some degree is, you know, what devices are people using? What version of iOS do we have to support? Uh, so, you know, we often have like a, a watermark of like 95% or better before we uh, drop the old version of, of iOS. Um, some apps we might even want a higher per percent adoption of the the latest or or the the one before the latest before we drop uh, a version. Yeah, I I'm going to have a interesting conversation in my sprint planning tomorrow because. Uh, Google Fiber, it has, they're dropping uh, access of their uh, site through web views, through built-in web views. And I think uh, the drop dead date on that is actually April 20th. So you won't be able to do any kind of OAuth to Google Fiber in a web view inside of your app after that date. And you'll need to use Safari view controller 
or the equivalent, I think it's Chrome tab or something like that on Android. And the app I'm on right now, we support all the way down to iOS eight. And yeah, yeah. that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Unfortunately, I guess Google fiber would be a small, a small number of users for us, but yeah, and fiber is like, um, like an ISP type of service. Is that? Yeah. And I know they started out in Kansas and expanded to a few different cities from there, but yeah, it's, it's just a, it's like a cable provider. Okay. Yeah. I, I work on one of those types of apps that needs that kind of information. But yeah, that's going to be a fun conversation tomorrow. So, you know, there's lots of different things you can capture with the analytics packages. Uh, there's a couple caveats there. One is, and we often see that people invest a lot of time and money into implementing analytics and capture a ton of metrics and then don't do anything with it. So often you can find that you have way way too much data to really make any decisions or drive any um, any optimizations or business process improvements. So, you know, it, it's often a good idea to start with a small number of metrics, you know, page views being the simplest and uh, add on from there. Actually, yeah, I can see two sides to that coin. The, the one being, yeah, the, the whole you're not going to need it philosophy. But when you do need it. Having the history. <laughs> having the history would help. Yeah. And it would, you would take you a while to, say, gather up a, a meaningful sample size if you put it in, say, put something in to answer that question in your next release. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think part of that depends on the organization as well. Like if you have people who are dedicated to managing your analytics or a marketing team that consumes it and makes use of it, then, you know, often, you know, capturing everything's something that they can deal with. But if you have a company that, you know, or you're an independent and, you know, you, you don't have hours each week to parse through all the data and make sense of it, you can, it, it's often best to start simple and, and build up. Yeah. I would, I think that you and I, you've, uh, you've come to that conclusion based on a former, uh, workplace that you and I shared. Yeah. And it, it's certainly not unique to a single workplace. I mean, it's, it's not unusual for uh, there to be an initiative to collect a whole bunch of data and then to have nobody look at it. <laughs> it's just, you know, that's not uncommon, but we've also worked with smaller companies that, you know, they just get overwhelmed if, if there's too much. So they want a fairly straightforward uh, report. And sometimes we will kind of do the analysis on the analytics for them and give them a summarized report to help them make sense of it. Yeah, because sometimes, especially if you wait till the end, your analytics implementation can take weeks to to fully do. And if you don't use that data, those weeks could have been 
spent doing something better, you know, fixing crashes, tweaking the app layout design, making it more user-friendly or, or functional. Yeah. And I think, I think the average person probably does, you know, something closer to the bare minimum where, you know, it may be a few hours at the end of a release to add analytics. Um, but you know, you and I have both seen companies that have had entire teams of people spending weeks implementing analytics. Often they're using multiple uh, packages to capture different aspects uh, of the customer experience in, in different ways. So it's, uh, you know, some companies spend an outrageous amount of money on the analytics, but it's also, you know, a core business need that the difference between, you know, a second here or a second there or converting a user versus a user abandoning a card or something like that. You know, it's, you know, we have customers that, you know, they do millions of dollars of transactions a week, if not a day, uh, in their application. So, you know, those, those optimizations, that data is actually, yeah, equates to potentially real, real profit. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It can, it can pay for itself if, if used properly. So another thing that, uh, you know, definitely people got into trouble with in the past is, you know, what, what's often referred to as PII or personally identifiable information. Uh, any, anything that's, you know, really considered private, personal logging that things like, you know, email addresses and, uh, usernames, uh, date of birth, things like that, that, could potentially cause you trouble down the road, you know, especially if you're logging it to a third party, uh, analytics package, like a Google analytics, uh, you may be violating terms of, of privacy with, with your end user. So you gotta be really careful about that as well. Yeah. And, and maybe not in the U S but maybe in Europe you could be, cause they have a lot more strict privacy rules than they do in the U.S. Uh, California has. It's better just to not touch that that third rail. Yeah, and you know we've worked on uh, healthcare applications, uh, multiple healthcare applications in the past, and you know we get into HIPAA requirements, uh, which kind of along the same lines, where you could potentially be capturing people's medical records or, um, their pharmaceutical, uh, information. And, you know, you gotta, you don't want to give that to a third party. Right. And anyway, I think you're allowed to log it. If it's a private analytics repository, then, um, you know, that's fine as long as you're protecting that data. But if you give it, basically give it away to somebody else then it, it can be an issue. But that, that, uh, that brings us to another idea that really when you're capturing individual values, if you want to analyze those, analyze those individual values, there's really not a lot of benefit that you're going to get to know that so-and-so bought one pair of socks on some website. What you really want to find is the aggregate of what your users are doing. So, you know, 
are 20% of my users running five miles per day or one mile per day or, or, or what, what are my breakdowns across my user base? Not so much on a individual level. Right. You know, analytics are usually much more useful at an aggregate versus the individual. Yeah. And, and so that's also why that PII data, it's not smart to capture it and it's really not even useful to capture. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember some of the motivation why, uh, there was desire to capture it in the past. Um, you know, where it does come in handy is like capturing some of that information along with like a crash log, you know, from a support standpoint, if you can actually, if you know who was having the issue, you could potentially follow up with that user, but that can be kind of creepy as well. Yeah. I really wouldn't want XYZ company reaching out to me and say, Oh, we're, yeah, we we're, saw that you crashed. <laughs> sorry. You had some problems with our app. What can we do to help make it better? Yeah. You can just stay out of my data. Thank you. Yeah. Kind of going along with that, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, third parties versus kind of private repositories. You know, it's definitely something to look at closely as terms of use, who owns the data. A lot of those free solutions, which are often as good or better than the paid solutions. Um, the third party owns the data and is allowed to sell it uh, to whoever they want, whomever they want. Yeah. They're, they're not a charity. Yeah. And in some ways it's kind of hard to see how some of the data might be useful to these companies, but it's a, you know, like a holistic view of a user. So if they, yeah, if Uber uses Google analytics, then Google will be able to tie you back to your Uber account somehow, in some way. Right. You know, ultimately they're trying to put together a, a broader picture of the demographics of the users. You know, what kind of you know, users that use this app also use these other three apps and, uh, you know, understanding your customers is, is very valuable having worked at companies that that invested quite a bit of money buying data from lots of different places to get an aggregate picture of customers it's it's big business i mean it's oh yeah often that data is more valuable than you know the end product that's being sold that's how facebook makes money that's why it's not a subscription service it's free sort of yeah so there's a lot of solutions out there, a lot of free ones, a lot of good free ones, or at least decent, you know, Firebase, Flurry, uh, uh, Google Analytics, uh, which is presumably deprecated, if not officially, unofficially in favor of Firebase Analytics. Yeah. Uh, Google Analytics was okay. I, I It didn't really compare very well to some of the commercial ones I used at work. Right. I, I think the companies that use Google analytics for their website, it can be nice to have your mobile analytics in the same place, uh, with some of the same tools, you know, most of these tools to get a lot of value out of them require a decent amount of, uh, education or training to, 
to use the advanced features. So having to learn lots of different packages can be difficult. Yeah. Uh, but actually it kind of goes back to that. Who owns the data too? Is that yeah. something like Google analytics? It would be free for you to use, but if you wanted to suck down that data to do your own processing on, they, that's when you stepped into the paid tier. Yeah. So if you want to do anything that's above and beyond, you probably want to own your data. Yeah. We've, in most cases, we have seen that there's, there's a huge gap between the free and the paid versions, like the real high end paid ones can get extremely expensive. They're often more difficult to set up, often require training and somebody full time to manage and, and to really make use of them. Uh, but often we also don't see like a huge value above the free ones, you know, outside of tying it into other tools. Like, you know, you talked about pathing through the application, but you can tie it into other marketing tools to, um, kind of give a full marketing view or life cycle, uh, through, uh, multiple systems. Yeah. And in some ways kind of going to con contradict myself a little bit, but we said you really don't want to capture PII, but at the last company or last project I was working on, we didn't capture a personally identifiable token, but we did kind of create a randomized token and then send it to the analytics package and send it back to one of our backend systems so that the data could then be correlated to an actual user in-house uh, the data on its own. If somebody were to break into the analytics provider and steal all that data, it wouldn't mean anything, but uh, that was helpful for them because they could then kind of correlate across their website and across their mobile site or mobile app and mobile site, all these different things and then go and say, okay, this person is interested in, product XYZ or this type of product. And so we can send them advertisements or deals for that type of product. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's, yeah, you, know, you have to be careful how you do it because, you know, even like a token can, um, it'd be considered PII if it's, if it can easily be tied back, but if you're randomizing it and it gets a little bit more anonymous. Yeah. So, you know, once you've figured out where you're going to host the data, your, your service, a uh, paid service or uh, a third party free service, um, you need to figure out what you're going to track. And, you know, this is often something that seen mismanaged and, you know, a lot of people don't treat the analytics requirements like requirements. They kind of just wing it. Uh, and, when you have multiple platforms that you want to keep in sync, that gets really difficult. And so, you know, often we'll create like a spreadsheet or something to track all the different events and pages that we want to track and what, what we want to log for each, uh, so we can keep it in sync and have a little bit more concrete requirements about what's being done. Yeah. And even then, if you're having two different people doing that implementation, you're, you're going to have to sync up again and again and again. And then somewhere down the line, 
it's probably going to get out of sync because somebody refactors part of the code and I'm on one platform and somebody else refactors another part of the code on the other platform. And you're going to have a, a story or two to resync your analytics. Yeah. And this can be a pretty difficult thing to test, especially uh, if you're using a third party library SDK. Uh, yeah. And one thing that we do uh, to help with that is we can wrap it in our own kind of facade, uh, which makes testing a little bit easier. But you know, another thing we run into, especially with the bigger clients, is they often have multiple packages in the same application for tracking different aspects of the analytics. And uh, you don't necessarily want to make multiple calls for everywhere you need to log something. You know, we will use this wrapper to kind of do the composite. So you just call your implementation and then it will handle calling all the other third-party implementations. Uh, so it simplifies the code. And if you swap out uh, an implementation later with another package, which happens pretty often, uh, we found, especially with the, the bigger companies, and you, you only have to play, change it in one place rather than just going through all your code. Yeah. The... As far as testing goes, my current assignment, the testers use Charles proxy to test everything, which can be kind of tedious. It's not because you're, you're having to inspect individual, uh, HTTP requests typically. Yeah. But in a lot of cases, that's, that's the best option there is. Yeah. A lot of times those calls are queued up too. So that. You know, it, it won't like necessarily send them immediate. It'll batch it. Right. So it's, it can be a little difficult if somebody says, well, I tapped the button and the, the ad event didn't fire, but then I went back out of the screen and then it did fire. Well, that's, that's just it being queued up. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely wrap your implementation. You don't want. You don't want to see Google Analytics code in your view controller. That's that's just bad. Yeah, and analytics is one of those cross-cutting concerns that spans uh, throughout your code, usually at the UI layer um, specifically, but it gets a little bit challenging to manage it that way because it crosses the boundaries of a lot of different things. So. Uh, you know, commonly these packages will use a singleton so you can easily log, you know, you might have some sort of setup uh, when the app launches, but then you use a singleton to call the single instance. Um, but then, you know, sometimes that can be unwieldy as well, especially, you know, with your unit tests. It often is nicer to inject it, but um, there's not really a great answer for it because of the cross-cutting nature of it. I struggle with it all the time because sometimes the analytics implementations, when you click add on something, it's in a collection view or a table view or something. They want to know the position that that ad was in, that actually that item was in. So was it the, the first item in the table? Was it the 20th one down? That can be important information. Right. You know, like it could be the difference of 
position in a list could be the difference between selling the the high margin item or selling the the discount item. True, uh, but that's not something we usually track keep track of when we're calling into our ad method or buy method or whatever. So it just it makes it difficult. I always struggle with. I have this great, nice, clean implementation of code that if things don't know about other things that shouldn't know about other things, you know, they're, they're all isolated and they have their nice, perfect boundaries. And then analytics comes along and messes it all up. Yeah. There's a few different strategies for that, or, or at least for managing analytics, not necessarily for the, the scenario where the analytics wants to know more information than um, than what you might have readily available by default. But, you know, some of the packages will try and do automatic tracking for you, and often they'll implement that uh, through method swizzling. So they'll they'll swizzle like the view did load or view view will appear method and uh, do the logging of the screen that way. So you don't have to necessarily write any code, but swizzling can be a little messy. I think, you know, in this scenario, I'd, if I were going to Swizzle, I'd probably do it myself rather than letting a third-party package do it. Um, I think I would could, just call into the method explicitly that the Swizzle method is going to call into. And I would just, yeah. I would just suffer with having to implement that everywhere in the app rather than yeah. let Sizzling go into the app. Yeah. And what you're trying to avoid with the Swizzling is forgetting to add analytics, you know, every time you add a new screen. Uh, so, you know, the swizzling kind of lets you get away from that. Google Analytics has a solution. I think they used to do swizzling, but now they have a view controller that you extend, which that's kind of problematic too, because now you have, you know, you're extending their view controller and right. you, you get into this whole inheritance uh, silliness that you don't necessarily want to always inherit from from their view controller and then you end up creating your own wrapper around it so you end up with this class hierarchy that uh could get messy as things change over time yeah, and if you happen to have to pull in a view controller that they didn't provide a a uh, implementation for say like the av foundations av video controller if there's not one of those for Google Analytics, then you're going to wind up writing the code yourself. Yeah. Although that's one you're not supposed to subclass. But yeah, anyway. you wouldn't necessarily subclass it, but um, it's you know there are examples like that 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 you might want to do, like UI collection view controller, for example. And it's perfectly okay to subclass that, but yeah, and I would imagine that the Google Analytics package would at least cover the, the big three, the, you know, the UI view controller, table view, and collection view controllers. They might. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily count on it. it. They might expect you to just manually implement the table view or collection view inside of a standard view controller. You know, some people do that by default anyway. They don't want to. They don't want to use one of those subclasses. Yeah, uh, they want to manage it themselves. Um, it's really not a bad idea either. No. View controller containment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, you could also potentially have like a protocol and an extension on 
your UI view controller, you know, there's still some work you have to do, but you know, in terms of accessing the analytics package or setting a screen name or something like that, you could do it in a protocol slash extension. Uh, so yeah, uh, at least you know, maybe factor out some of the boilerplate code. Yeah. I have one other little thing I've, as far as like Redux style apps or Flux style apps. I've seen people try to go down a route of, okay, well, if something happens to our app store or app state, we can infer what we know, what event that was that changed that state. So we could then log that state, but or log that event. But usually your event is not carrying enough data, like such as like screen name. So you, you get, you go down that route, trying to do a, a nice, simple analytics implementation that just subscribes to your, your app state changes, but it doesn't really work that way. Yeah. So you've got the state and you've got the action, but you don't necessarily have the context. Right. And that's what analytics is all about. Having that context. So, oh, well, want to wrap this up? Yeah. Yeah. But I think in, you know, summary, adding analytics isn't difficult, but there are definitely some things to think about. Um, and it's worth adding it to any application that you're going to ship to production. Yeah, definitely. You definitely want to know what your users are doing because you, it's one of your only ways of getting a good picture, good feedback of what's going on in your app. You know, very often we hear from the users that are having problems and not so much from the users that aren't having problems. Yeah. And it definitely informs your decisions about, you know, how much time should you invest in making feature X better or um, fixing bugs in one feature. Like you might find out that, and often true that 80% of the usage is in 20% of the application. So, you know, you really should focus on making that 20% better as opposed to that feature that gets used, you know, only occasionally. Right. <laughs> or it could be the other way around and it's like, oh, we need to make this better so people actually use it. Um, kind of depends on what value it brings to the business. Yeah. Class half full or half empty. Yep. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell us where we can find you on the, the internet? Okay. You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. And as usual, I'm at Sam Quarter, and the podcast is at Shared Inst. And you can join our Slack chat at chat.sharedinstance.com. I look forward to hearing from you guys. Later. See you.